Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, Catherine Herridge and me at CBS censoring the news and the Boeing Dreamliner fires. Quite a few people have been asking me what I think about the Katherine Herridge situation over at CBS News, where I used to work. And I do have some thoughts. I haven't had time to arrange to do interviews with some of the news organizations and podcasts that have asked. But I'm driving today and thought that I would record some of my thoughts for a podcast and share those for those who might be interested. By way of background, in case you don't know, I worked at CBS News from about 1993 to 2014, much of the time as an investigative correspondent. Prior to that, I worked, by the way, at CNN back when it was a news organization. And I also, at the same time I worked at CBS, hosted a PBS Health news magazine for five or six years that was produced by the Washington Post Company. I enjoyed many terrific years reporting for CBS News, loved my job, broke quite a few big stories with help from some terrific producers and with support from some awesome news managers at CBS for many years, and then as outlined in my series of books beginning with Stonewalled and later Slanted and The Smear, things changed in the news business. I was probably due to the type of reporting that I did was on the leading edge of experiencing and beginning to understand how news media outlets were becoming influenced and propagandized starting in, I'd say, the early 2000s when I noticed it with the pharmaceutical industry exerting extraordinary control over the stories that we reported and the way we reported them. And then not long after that, the censorship trends, which we're very used to today, sadly, but it was so unusual back when it first happened to be told by somebody that a story shouldn't air at all. There was a time when, of course, outside interests would lobby to be part of a story or to have you say certain things in it, but it was unusual in my experience that people would stop a story from airing entirely. That became common, and that was due to pressure exerted from outside the organization, but also from some news managers who are hired to work inside the organization. And long story short, there was a huge push-me-pull-you going on my final years at CBS News, whereby I broke probably some of my biggest stories of my career. I think the last year I was at CBS News, which was the only year that the organization didn't ask me, gee, are there any stories you'd like to put up for Emmy nominations? So my producer and I, we put three stories up on our own, and all three of them received Emmy nominations, and one of them won the Investigative Emmy Award that year. But that was the year CBS didn't want to put any of them out there. So things were really changing at CBS. And as you may know, because so many stories, yes, I did report a lot of stories and get some of them on the air that last year too, but so many more were left on the floor, probably some of the biggest stories of my career. Maybe I'll talk about that later in this podcast or in another podcast. But because I felt there was dishonesty in the way that the news was being slanted and the reporting was being shaped and censored, many of you know I left my contract mid-contract. CBS had signed me to another contract. And I had to, I felt, get out of that bad situation 
So I left mid-contract in 2014, actually ended up parting um, on good terms, relatively. I very much liked and appreciated Jeff Fager, who was head of the news division for part of the time that I was there and head of 60 Minutes. We left on very good terms. Um, David Rhodes, the day I left, after Jeff Fager sent me a nice note, David Rhodes, head of the news division, also sent me a, a nice note. So there wasn't really animosity at the end. I think they knew why I was leaving and that it was sort of irreconcilable. And I didn't see the problems that were happening in the news division at CBS as unique to CBS because I was talking to my colleagues at other news organizations. And I was aware that the news industry was drastically changing and it had been shifting slowly over time. And I had tried to alert colleagues, the CBS lawyers, our journalism groups, to the inevitability that would be, we would find ourselves in a terrible position with conflicts in our newsrooms and in our news if we didn't begin firewalling ourselves from the interests that sought to shape and censor and influence us. And that was, again, in the early 2000s, but nobody seemed to me very interested in addressing this. And here we are. Looking forward, this is exactly where I thought we might be, although we got there faster than even I imagined. And I think that was due in part to the acceleration of the trends of shaped and manipulated and biased news with the advent of Donald Trump entering the scene in 2015. If you'd like to read more about that, again, refer to the books that I've previously written because I cover a lot of that in great detail and gosh, it seems more relevant than ever would answer some of your questions about why things work the way they do today. But on to Katherine Herridge, who I don't know personally. I've reached out to her a couple times over the years, but we've never spoken. Um, so and I, d I have no inside information as to her situation at CBS, but a couple of reflections. I'm not surprised that CBS let her go. Um, in my view, the networks in recent years have made numerous hires where the trend is they hire someone who does great stories like Katherine Herridge was doing at Fox News, who might unearth good investigations. And then there are real news people within the news organizations who want that kind of reporting, but there are interests that reach down from sometimes places we don't even know where it comes from and make sure that some of this reporting doesn't air. So I knew when she went to CBS, in my mind, her stories would almost never see the light of day, at least on any prominent format. She would probably publish a lot online or on the things that are not seen as much on TV. That's what they tried to do with some of my best stories. To the extent they aired at all, I would find outlets like the web or the weekend news or the morning show uh, to air the things the evening news wouldn't air, even though they were big, important stories and breaking news. So I think that was the case. I don't watch network news anymore, but from what I hear from colleagues, uh, she had trouble getting her stories on the main format news at CBS News and published quite a bit on the web and online. And if you want to look at it conspiratorially, because so many conspiracies are actually true. Favorite saying at the Cheryl Atkinson store is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. There are actually people who conspire, perhaps, to hire reporters like Katherine Herridge for the purpose of burying them because they're influential on the 
national news landscape. I think Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox, not for the reasons stated, but for the reasons of removing him from a big platform where he could have influence in 2024. He was not an open supporter, to my knowledge, of Donald Trump, but the kinds of interviews and reporting that he did tended to benefit a Trump and fall against the establishment politicians, including Democrats and Joe Biden. So he, in my view, had to be removed from the important stage or soapbox that he had at Fox News. Of course, whoever orchestrated this didn't understand he could end up, and apparently has ended up, over at X or Twitter with a an even larger audience and perhaps more sway. I will point to the case of Megyn Kelly. When Megyn Kelly became quite influential and watched over at Fox News, particularly when she butted heads with Donald Trump during his first campaign, she stood to influence the national news landscape in a way that a lot of people didn't like. She was hired away by NBC and then buried, I would argue, where she didn't have or wasn't given the sort of prominence for the types of stories and interviews she had been doing, where she could play a big role in having some influence and then ultimately left NBC. She also has a very successful podcast and is arguably influencing people in a different way more so than ever. But I'm just saying, I think there are people that hire influential people who are on the wrong side of, or they think are on the wrong side of issues, and then hire them for the purposes of burying them. I had that feeling a little bit my last years at CBS, when I would come up with so many good original stories, as I said, some of the best ones of my career, and have some of them not able to make the news, I came to wonder why they continued to employ me and sign me to new contracts, especially that last one, for a lot of money. And I started to believe that was to sort of keep me out of the way, because as long as I worked at CBS, they could control the stories that did make it on the air, and they could control my ability to publish elsewhere. In other words, I couldn't publish elsewhere if CBS passed over a story. So somebody was able to exert near total control over the editorial content that I was able to publish, whereby if they had let me go, they would lose that control. So when I walked away from my contract, that was a great deal of freedom for me to be able to publish stories at least somewhere if mainstream outlets didn't want them or if there was a dishonest shaping at some news organization, I now would have the power to at least uh, contribute to another news organization or publish on my own format at CherylAxon.com. Now back to Katherine Herridge. A lot of the questions that have come to me in the past couple of days had to do with an article by Jonathan Turley in The Hill and discussions about how CBS confiscated her notes and records and how extraordinary this was and outrageous and unprecedented. And I hate to disappoint you, but I, I have a totally different take on that. I will preface it by saying there is reason to be suspicious of some people at CBS, of their motivations. So this is not to brush off concerns about what CBS could be doing with Katherine Herridge's notes and what its motivations are. But on the other hand, as far as I know, it's standard operating procedure that a news organization would own and keep 
reporter records if the reporter departs. In fact, to my recollection, that's in our contract. They own your work product, they own your notes, they own the material you gather while working for them. They own the stuff that you store in your offices, all of that. So I was keenly aware when I worked at CBS that everything I did was subject to them looking into. And to be frank, I, I didn't fear that in one way because even though I did have confidential sources, I frequently shared this sort of thing internally with the CBS lawyers anyway as I had them review my stories just for my own protection. In fact, the CBS lawyers once told me that I was the only news journalist at CBS who regularly came to them for a review of my stories, including 60 Minutes. Not that they don't sometimes use the lawyers, but apparently I use them more frequently. I considered that protection. And I came to learn by frequent consultations with the CBS lawyers how to write a fair, accurate, bulletproof story that still nonetheless uh, covered the appropriate material, even when controversial, but in a way that left us protected from lawsuits and exposure and liability. So my mindset was always that the work that I did, your employer was allowed to look at at most any time. Some controversy arose over that in the period of time at CBS News when I began covering pharmaceutical company scandals. I was led to believe or conclude that inappropriate monitoring or looking at my work product and materials were, were taking place. I had inside sources at CBS News that told me the corporation had special software on my computer to monitor work that was not routinely on other people's computers. And I also was told at some point some of that was not the news division, it was coming outside the news division. But your mindset as a reporter working for a company ought to be that the company you work for has access and has the right to access your material. This may not have come into play very often when you hear it reported that, oh, what happened to Katherine Harridge was so unusual. Well, the circumstance was unusual. First of all, they were apparently letting her go. It was not her decision. A lot of times when reporters retire or leave a network, there's no controversy. There's no confiscation of material. But secondly, most of the reporters at these networks don't do the kind of work that the network would care to see the notes from or would have any exposure or liability from. So part two of this question is, it's my understanding that the network is obligated to preserve all notes, communications, and materials pertaining to any story where there could be potential litigation, even if not already filed. They don't have a choice. Again, it's my understanding, I was always told at CBS News, that even if a lawsuit hasn't been filed, if someone threatens, provides notice, or if you suspect for any reason that there could potentially be some sort of claim about a story you did, you have to, they have to preserve your notes. So if she departs the company, again, it's my understanding, they don't have a choice but to preserve materials that she gathered while in their employ for the possibility that a lawsuit 
could arise over some of this or court action in the future. To that point, when I broke my contract with CBS, in order to be allowed to leave without them pursuing some kind of legal action against me, I agreed to pretty much what they wanted to do, except I wouldn't agree to a confidentiality agreement where I could never talk about CBS. They want people to stand to sign standard agreements. And since I wasn't asking for anything from them, since I was breaking the contract and not asking for a payment of any kind, and there's really nothing they could have offered me to keep my mouth closed, then I didn't have to sign a confidentiality agreement. But I did sign a paper saying that I had left or given over all of my records. I argued that some of them were joint ownership, and they didn't challenge that, so some of the records were quasi-personal, gathered on my time and my dime, and some of them merged with work records, so some of them were mixed, but the point was I signed a paper to let them know that I left them with everything they potentially owned. Again, this is in the contract when you sign, I think they're pretty standard contracts at the networks and at CBS News that they own this material. This is not to say, to reiterate, that CBS News and all the people there are to be totally trusted with whatever they're doing to Katherine Herridge, because I don't think that's the case, that they're to be totally trusted. There's reason to be suspicious of their motivations. I'm just telling you that this whole story about them confiscating her notes and records I have a slightly different take on that. What does Katherine Herridge do next? Again, I have no particular insight. She seems to be a fantastic reporter, fearlessly, fairly going after material, even when it doesn't buy her friends and favors. And believe it or not, that's a hard thing to do sometimes in a newsroom. You have to be driven or stubborn or committed or all of the above when you have colleagues who are ideologically rooted in certain camps who look at you askance if you go off the narrative or if they sense that there are some people inside the corporation that you're kind of going up against their ideologies and interests, it's, it can be a lonely place to be in and to be committed to continuing to do that kind of reporting and to have bosses, which I always did somewhere along the way. There were bosses that encouraged that kind of reporting even when we were up against opposition within the network. I always had some support. That takes courage on their part, too. It's not easy in the newsroom environment, which is a lot of groupthink and pressure. Not easy to go against the grain. So where does that leave someone like me or Katherine Herridge or Megan Kelly or so many others who have moved on from the places where they once worked because they weren't allowed the freedom of reporting, but who want to do honest, fair, accurate reporting that may be off the current narratives and against the widespread propaganda. Well, I think there are places she can and will go. She'll have a choice. The good news is there are new paradigms that are developing that have arisen because of this very problem. There are many far left-leaning journalists like Glenn Greenwald who have found new outlets like Substack. There are journalists like Tucker Carlson, I guess, more libertarian slash conservative leaning who have found X and Twitter. And I think 
these new platforms are still developing, but at least it's offering opportunities for independent journalists to be heard in a fair way where they don't have to be beholden to the special interests and propaganda that so dominates our information landscape today. As for me, I was very lucky when I left CBS News to find the outlet at Sinclair Broadcasting, which is a conservative-owned TV station group I knew nothing about. And I think it's so funny that I worked for liberal-owned groups the rest of my career. Ted Turner at CNN, Les Moonves and company at CBS. Obviously, I worked at PBS. And I didn't hear anybody accuse me to any serious degree of being somehow tainted because I worked at these liberal news organizations. And they allowed me, particularly at CNN, under Ted Turner, to do fair coverage. I never felt him reaching in to CNN and telling us what to do and how to report things, which was great, unlike it is today. But suddenly when I worked for the first and only time for a conservative-owned group, which also doesn't reach down and tell me what I have to do, suddenly the left-leaning ideologues say somehow my reporting must be unfair now. If you watch my TV program, Full Measure, you'll see that it's the same kind of reporting I was doing at CBS all those years. And it is the opposite of the bias and the unfairness that you may see on the other networks and national news organizations now. And yet, those who are so far left-leaning today in the news don't have any self-awareness and understand that the fact that their starting point for fairness is far left betrays their bias. And yet they seem to think their starting point as I said, is the fair way that everything should be reported and that anything that is not far left is therefore right-leaning. So the center to them, or fairness and accuracy to them, is by default right-leaning even when it's not. And heaven forbid a journalist report anything today that doesn't make Donald Trump look bad or may acknowledge that Donald Trump said something that was accurate or did something that turned out positive. To fairly report information on Donald Trump dooms you today to criticism from colleagues who are far left questioning your independence and fairness. It's, it's almost the opposite of what intuitively should be thought and told. Again, it takes sort of a stubborn or brave journalist to go against the grain and report something that's not negative about Donald Trump or may even be positive about Donald Trump. And I have done that partly because my whole goal is to try to report stories that are underreported or to help make viewpoints heard that others are trying to suppress. And that's almost always the view that may support something that Donald Trump has done because hardly anybody's reporting that. Which brings me to an upcoming edition of Full Measure where I'm going to go over some of the major media mistakes the formerly well-respected national news organizations made against Donald Trump starting around the 2015 time period. This was unprecedented. The number of mistakes made by the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, other national news outlets picked up by others circulated around the world that always seemed to cut against Donald Trump. And you can look at the whole list, by the way, at CherylAckison.com. If you go under the investigations tab, you'll see Donald Trump media mistakes but the question remained, had the media just changed? Would every subsequent president after Trump 
get the same kind of treatment because there had simply been loosened standards in the newsrooms and acceptance of bias and so on. And I think we have the answer to that now, three years into the Biden administration. On full measure in my report, I will compare the media mistakes that I've tracked in real time under Donald Trump with the major media mistakes made under the Biden administration. And there's lots of examples. You will love seeing this, you know, in black and white with the actual citations. But what I learned was far fewer media mistakes under President Biden. And when they have occurred, guess what? They still tend to cut against Donald Trump or serve in some way to help Joe Biden or benefit Democrats. So it starts to look undeniably like it's not an accident or simply a result of sloppiness and slipping editorial standards that there have been so many media mistakes that seem to cut in the same direction. After a short break, I may as well tell my Boeing Dreamliner story of how that report got killed at CBS in some of my final months or maybe the final year to two that I worked at CBS after a short break. Introducing Whipped Seafoam Body Butter by Siren A Cosmetics. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid. Enriched with the nourishing powers of cocoa butter, mango butter, and shea butter, our body butter whisks you away to a world of deep hydration. Experience the essence of the sea with every application as this whipped delight leaves your skin refreshed, replenished, and ready to conquer the day. Visit thelemonademermaid.com and make your skin sing with the magic of the sea. Let me close the loop on how I ended up at Sinclair doing my independent television Sunday news program that feeds to 43 million TV households, Full Measure, with Cheryl Ackeson. By the way, you can go to CherylAckeson.com and click the Full Measure tab to see the list of stations and times, but you can watch any time at fullmeasure.news online. We feed the show live at about... 9.31 Eastern Time on Sundays at fullmeasure.news and then it gets posted thereafter, so watch any time. But when I left CBS, I wasn't thinking about staying in the news business because who would want to hire an investigative reporter that simply wanted to follow the leads, tell the facts as they are in this environment that was so drastically shifting away from that sort of thing. To my surprise, I got quite a few nibbles, phone calls, and outreach from people looking to hire me. I didn't want to jump into anything right away because I didn't want to get into another bad situation, which are all around us. And I'm sure Catherine Harridge will go through this sort of mental exercise as well, assuming she too will be considering other jobs and be approached by entities for her reporting skills. So I wanted to be very judicious but one of the entities that reached out to me was one I hadn't heard of, Sinclair. And the person who reached out to me was Scott Livingston, their head of news. And back then, I was still talking to my primary CBS News producer because I had left mid-contract. She was going to serve hers out and then come and work with me with whatever I was doing next. And I would call her every day or two and tell her the types of job nibbles that were coming in my direction and on this one day I said to her oh 
someone from Sinclair called me named Scott Livingston. I don't even know what they are. I Googled them. I don't understand what kind of a group it is. And I don't plan to call them back. And she said, well, as it happens, I worked with Scott Livingston. He was a photographer that I worked with in local news years ago. He's a wonderful man. You should call him back. And really, that was fateful. That was the only reason I did return the call to Scott Livingston of Sinclair. And over a period of time and discussions, that turned into the job that I have today going on 10 years. It'll be 10 years in the fall, and we are being renewed for a 10th year. Didn't even dream this would go on for so long. I'm happy it has. But it offered a unique opportunity to do the kind of reporting I had been doing at CBS News with an even broader audience than I'd ever had at CBS and CNN, and with more freedom to do more stories, longer stories, and to have editorial control as managing editor, and so on. So it's been a wonderful experience. But back to those last years at CBS, when first the pharmaceutical industry, after I began covering vaccine-related stories on assignment in the early 2000s, everybody was covering them back then. That was before the industry successfully propagandized any questions about vaccine safety as anti-vaccine. That's a new phrase they invented and distributed that worked quite well to controversialize researchers and journalists asking these sorts of rational questions about a product given to almost every American multiple times starting at birth. But when I was first covering those stories and I got a lot of them on, New York Times was covering them, Washington Post was covering them, LA Times was covering them. We were competing to cover them. There were so many to cover. When the pushback came to be as the pharmaceutical industry had partnered with the broadcast networks and media to lobby to legalize direct-to-consumer advertising in a way that had never been done before, where these TV ads are now blanketed all over everywhere we look. That didn't used to be legal to advertise prescription drug products on, on television and on broadcast. Anyway, the broadcast networks partnered with the pharmaceutical industry to press Congress to get the FDA, I guess, to allow this because there was money to be made and hands to be washed, um, you know, all over the place with this. So during that time came pressure on people like me not really understanding what was going on behind the scenes and through my bosses to tamp down or not air these pieces or to change what they said or to censor them entirely. I came to learn there were secret meetings given by This was unprecedented as far as I knew. Given by managers in New York, I was working in D.C., about my stories. They would hold secret meetings and allow one-on-one consultations with lobbyists and law firms that represented the pharmaceutical industry and vaccine makers, unbeknownst to me. So all of these shenanigans were going on. And every time I would come to realize with my producers that a certain line of stories were no matter how much news was broken, no matter how important they were, were not what certain powerful people of the network wanted, I would find another line to investigate because there's a pretty much endless number of topics that we can look into that need reporting out, particularly in this homogenized environment whereby the news seems to be kind of reporting the same four or five stories all the time. There's so 
there are so many stories left unreported. So I would find a new line to look into. But as time went on, every new thing I and my producers found to investigate came under this similar clampdown, I'll call it, whereby even if the evening news executive producer liked it, or even if the Washington, D.C. bureau chief encouraged it, even as the lawyers approved the scripts, there would be some type of pushback that would reach down from somewhere in the network that would either make you feel really lousy after one of your best stories aired, or that would successfully try to delay, stall, or shape a story. And it came to be toward the end that I felt like, even though looking back I was still getting some stories on, it felt to look like more of them were being left on the cutting room floor. And to try to talk to whistleblowers and people who are telling the truth inside a federal agency or corporation, to tell them how important their story is and to get them to step forward with it, only to have to go back to them and say, your story is not going to air, which makes no sense. It just got to be too difficult as a reporter, a bad situation over and over again, which is why I left. But one of the last stories I remember ending up on the cutting room floor, there were so many, but this is clearly to me one of the most important. It's an exemplary case that will tell you the sorts of things that were happening with other stories that I did involves my assignment to look into the Boeing Dreamliner fires. With the Dreamliner story, one day at CBS, a producer type, maybe it was even somebody with the web, I don't remember who, asked me to look into the Dreamliner fires. This was the new Boeing beautiful giant airplane that was catching fire due to what we learned was the lithium-ion battery of the type that they were using and or perhaps the system that housed it inside the airplane. So this was a huge deal. There had been the grounding of several planes because of fires and nobody seemed to be doing a great job at quickly getting at answers and what had happened. So as often happened at CBS, sometimes I had my own ideas and brought investigations to the news division, sometimes a producer or somebody would ask me to investigate something. I liked it when they asked me because, as with Benghazi, as with the Enron scandal, I would break news and it would tend to mean that there was going to be a home for the stories if a producer had asked me to cover that topic, meant that they were interested in it for their program. So some producer asked me to look into the Dreamliner fires. And I begin with sort of a deep dive into research, what's already been reported, what documents are out there. And I remember finding a really short blurb, I think it was online, by a Fox Business reporter or just a little blurb on the Fox Business website. I don't know how it came up, but it talked about someone I would call a whistleblower who said that he knew something about why these Dreamliners were catching fire and he had some evidence about and had worked with the batteries some years before. So with all of my research, I that stuck out in my head. I ended up finding this gentleman, this whistleblower, and ended up really probably getting at the heart of what was the Dreamliner problems when nobody had. The National Transportation Safety Board or whichever body was looking into that was holding regular briefings. It was sort of almost, I'd say, an emergency situation at the time. And here I looked into some court documents, 
listen to this whistleblower's story. And going off memory now, there was something about many years before he had worked on the battery for the Dreamliner, the prototype. And the way he told the story, and he had actually filed a court case over this years ago. So there was a definitive court record. This stuff was established and it was not just conjecture, which made it great for my story. I didn't have to completely start from scratch and verifying the story and what had been told. But he had been in the chain of contractors who were developing components as the Boeing Dreamliner was being developed. And the story he told was that he was working in a factory, small building, I guess, where they were working on prototypes. And this battery prototype caught fire by itself and burned down the building. He actually had video of this fire, which had taken place years before, and I'd never seen it, so it was pretty incredible. He was seriously injured in the fire. Um, and he was inside the building at the time, and he made it out, but it was a big deal. And then, as his story went on, he talked about how Boeing and other companies had come to, let's say, diversify their supply chain in a way that people or companies or entities developing components were not necessarily well-coordinated. It wasn't just one chain of checks and balances that developed something and tested it and moved it along. It would go to entirely different people and companies at different steps of the way, which critics thought opened the door for flaws and problems. And this whistleblower said that happened, that when the battery or whatever he was working on, whatever system he was working on for Boeing Dream, the Boeing Dreamliner prototype, when that came to him and he found a flaw in the battery that was then corrected, um, the battery's supposed to go back to scratch, to go through its original checks and balances again. In other words, it can't be moved on to the next line or the next supplier or the next contractor without starting over because you've made a change in the supply chain that has not been tested since the beginning, if that makes sense. So apparently, he says, um, Boeing wanted him to pass along the battery anyway with the changes without putting it through the start again and going through proper testing. He says he refused to do that, and he's got documentation of records that show him communicating with supervisors and so on, and that when he finally would not sign off on this battery to go to the next step without the checks and balances, um, he says that somebody entered the picture, slapped the go-ahead on the battery part, whatever he was working on, and it went forward. And this turned out to be sure looked like this was the heart of the problem now being manifested in the Dreamliners years later. As part of my research, again, I looked through documentation and schematics and records and the court documents that were provided because there was an employment case that the whistleblower had filed over this some years ago where this was documented in real time. And I interviewed I believe it was the former head of the National Transportation Safety Board who looked at all the records that I provided and the whistleblower's claims and said the words, I believe, this is the smoking gun. So this was a big deal that this story was going to be perhaps broken wide open in terms of what the source was and how there had been alerts raised about this battery system some years before the lithium-ion system 
catching fire and so on. So I put together my research. I have the story legally reviewed as I do. Um, it was approved. I had two producers working on this with me. So they get to look at the story and they liked it. And then we send it through the head producer at the Washington Bureau who looks at the script. He gives it the go-ahead and it goes to New York for the evening news. Really one of the most impact impactful stories I did those last couple of years at CBS in terms of breaking news and having real good information. And here's where everything goes haywire, as was often the case. The script goes to New York and gets reviewed by the then executive producer, Pat Shevlin, who was the source of a lot of the censorship and unethical, dishonest reporting and decisions made at CBS. I was not alone in drawing that conclusion based on experience. She reads the script, and I'm actually thinking this might be one that gets by because I can't think of an overt political interest she would want to protect that this story could hurt. You know, she would often, I guess she had a very far left ideology that was very difficult for her to allow anything on the air that presented a fair recitation of something involving a political question. But I thought this has nothing to do with politics, naive me, and there shouldn't be an issue with getting the story on. She would probably like this one. Well, she calls from the New York newsroom into the DC newsroom, and I'm on the phone on one end, and the senior producer in New York is on the phone on another extension, and she starts saying the most illogical things about the script, and I, my cognitive dissonance would start to tell me when that happens, they're not going to air the story. Like I had learned when they start asking sort of crazy questions or raising issues that don't make sense, this means my producer and I would call it death by a thousand cuts. They're not going to run this story. And I had grown tired of, you know, you can explain and answer their questions all you want, but what they've, what's happened is they or she has decided not to run the story. It's only a matter of how she's going to explain why, because it's not going to, she's not going to tell you the truth about why. There's going to be a million questions raised. And in fact, one of the explanations I got the most often was this story is so good. We're going to save it for another night. Or you've covered this this issue so well there's no point in running another story tonight because you've done such a good job on it these things would make no sense when I would be I would say well this is even bigger news than the last iteration of this story that I covered we're breaking new ground here and they would just say well you know no it's it's you've just done such a good job there's just not much more to say about this story or again like I say they would say that they were going to put it off. They wouldn't say they were killing it. They would just keep putting it off day after day after day. Oh, we have to save it for a really good day. You know, we need to have more time devoted to it and we'll have more time we can devote to this important story tomorrow. And then it would just float away. So on this particular call with the executive producer, Pat Shevlin, she first says, well, this is a really interesting story, but I just don't understand why we're showing video of this fire in here. And I'm looking across the newsroom at the senior producer who's on the phone with me quizzically because how, how do you not understand why we're showing video of a fire that occurred during the test phase of the Dreamliner battery when we're investigating a story and exposing the cause of the fires of the Dreamliner battery problem? 
So she kind of argues that, well, you know, we need to take that video out. I don't understand why the video's in there. And I started to explain the obvious why the video's in there. And then she asked a couple more questions. And I started to realize this story's not going to air on the evening news, at least. So I look at the senior producer who's also trying to explain the obvious why the fire is being used in the story. And and I just made like a cut signal across my throat, meaning don't bother to argue with her. And I think I said something like, if we're going to be cutting out these key parts of the story, I just don't think it's a story for the evening news. So that ended that. Because back then, when these problems were arising, I've been told by some of the other shows, such as the Weekend News, hey, we'll take all your investigations. So maybe people don't know each show at the networks, at least when I worked there, had different editorial standards and ideas and thoughts about what could air, and they were not all biased and conflicted at the same time. They were not all beholden to the same outside interest pressure. They had different ones. I was always under the impression, and I heard this from executives at other networks, that the morning shows are greatly beholden to White House pressure in terms of who they interview and what they ask and that sort of thing. Um, shows have different pressure. The evening news is beholden to a lot of corporate interests. Well, so is the morning show too, but in terms of advertising pressure as to what they report. But the weekend news was one place toward the end that was still relatively conflict-free in many respects. And the executive producer at the time said, look, any investigations of yours they don't want, I will take. So at that point... I send the edited story, it was all finished, to the Weekend News executive producer, and I say, this is all finished if you'd like to have this story, and he says, absolutely terrific, can't wait, can you fly up for the Saturday show and present this live on the set? I think it was like on a Thursday this happened. I said, yep, absolutely terrific, happy to do it. Actually, Weekend News used to get more viewership than the weekday news at CBS. I'm not sure if that's still the case. But I was always proud and happy to have my work air on weekends. So the next day, if I recall correctly, was a Friday. And I had a different story airing on Evening News that night. And I was supposed to fly out after the show from D.C. to New York to present my Dreamliner investigation on the weekend show. And I get a contact out of the blue from the executive producer of the weekend news. And he says, you need to call the person who held the title at the time of... We called her ethics czar at CBS. And that was never good because the ethics czar at CBS and maybe at the other networks, I'm assuming, really held a position or a title that said one thing but served the purpose of sort of running interference between the news division and corporate when there was a story that might upset corporate. So when you were hearing from the ethics czar, a lot of times that was not a good thing for your story. So the ethics czar wanted to speak to me, and I knew it had something to do with the Dreamliner story. And by the way, at the time, I also knew that Boeing was calling around everywhere trying to stop and tamp down these stories. How did I know this? Well, for example, hearings were announced on Capitol Hill and then never held. Something Someone had stepped in, despite this being a really burning issue. And I believe, if memory serves me, neither the Republican nor the Democrat in charge of the transportation committee or whatever committee would have held the hearing would agree to do an interview with me, which meant to me 
somebody was calling around to try to stop this story or stop them from commenting on it. All of a sudden, it seemed like a clamp was coming down. Additionally, when I called many battery experts in the industry to get them on camera on the Dreamliner story, they told me that they could not be on camera because Boeing had basically called around and threatened that if they weighed in on this story, they would never get you know, a Boeing contract or anything related again. So these independent contractors are reliant on the industry to some degree. So I, st I started to understand that there were a lot of calls going around, and I assume now that this was happening at news organizations as well, including CBS. So fast forward to the ethics czar wants to speak to me, and I guess about the Saturday airing, the planned airing of the Dreamliner story get on the phone with her and it's another one of those nonsensical conversations that leads me to understand the story is not going to air. First she says something like what a great story this is but she said she couldn't figure out with this whistleblower was this a feature about a whistleblower or was this a hard news story and an investigation about the Dreamliner and I explained something she well knew and I said well the best investigative stories have both components. They have a great, interesting character, like the whistleblower, but they're also breaking important news. This has both of those, so it's neither exclusively one or the other. It is everything wrapped up in one. And she said something again like, well, I just don't understand. I'm just not sure if this is a feature or if it's a hard news piece. That was weird. Then she said something like, you know, maybe we should wait until the Federal Safety Board makes a determination. Well, that was even stranger because throughout the years of my reporting and this ethics czar knew very well, these safety bodies are often quite frankly conflicted by industry and have to be pushed along to make their findings in many cases. They're not always turning up things on the leading edge. They're waiting for people like me to report and expose issues and maybe they will be dragged along belatedly but they are not gonna necessarily be the ones to first expose something. And for us to wait around for them to discover the things supposedly that I happen to have discovered by my research and think that they're gonna come out and say that and then to follow up on them rather than breaking the news ourselves, that made no sense from a news standpoint. So something told me there was something else going on and I did say, I'd just been through this routine so many times those last couple of years. I said, look, if you don't want the story to air, if you think the timing's not right, just say so. And she said, let's just wait. I just don't think the timing's right. So the story was basically killed. One of the best, most important, impactful stories I'd probably investigated. And my bureau chief at CBS at the time, he was a good advocate, but he didn't win many battles on this front. He was a good advocate in terms of moral support and encouragement. He liked these kinds of stories. He came back from a vacation and I remember he knew this had happened and I said something to him, almost a direct quote would be, I can't see finishing out my contract under these circumstances. And that was sort of the mental beginning of the end because I had really tried hard within the network system. Like many whistleblowers, my story feels the same as a lot of sort of like federal whistleblowers. I had tried to work within the system. Uh, just reporting news that was good enough they couldn't and wouldn't want to keep it off the air. And then I came to realize, gosh, the news has become so conflicted, it's not really about what the viewers will want to see. It's about controlling the message. And I mentally made up my mind that 
I would be leaving CBS even though I was mid-contract. And that was sort of the beginning of the end. It took some time. I wanted to get my ducks in a row. Um, I had some things to sort through. I didn't want to just walk in and quit, you know, out of disappointment and frustration in one day. So I got my act together and before too terribly long, negotiated an early end of my contract and in 2014 left CBS. But that's my Boeing Dreamliner story. I hope you find it interesting and somewhat instructive as to the sorts of things that were happening behind the scenes. I don't know that that happens all the time anymore because who's doing that kind of reporting? You as a reporter learn that those kinds of stories and that kind of work isn't going to get on TV. Why waste your time? And I hear the same stories from my colleagues at major national newspapers. Why are they going to spend time investigating great stories only to have their editors smack it down or change it too much or not publish it in a prominent place? It makes you gravitate toward the stories that they want. And in that way, there's this bias works itself into the fabric of news coverage in a way that doesn't even take necessarily an executive anymore saying you have to do this or here's what we're going to do. Everybody sees what gets rewarded and what they like and what's going to make air and what's going to get prominence and promotions and kudos. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAxon.com and click on the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of fun and functional products designed specifically for independent and free thinkers like you, featuring slogans like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and I need to find some new conspiracy theories, all my old ones came true. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave us a great review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. And now you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking on the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, such as products with the slogan, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. Proceeds benefit independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.